welcome back for part two of my interview with Bill Haley Jr. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed part one. Part two is a little bit longer than part one. Um, it, was, it wasn't easy finding a good place to, to put in a, a break between the episodes. And I, I have included a little bit of the tail end of, of the last half of the interview so that we kind of get the context for what we move into next. So without further ado, enjoy. That's what prompted him to call us, to, to get back in touch yeah. with his son that basically had forgotten about it. I don't know if he forgotten about us. I can't really say that, but... But we weren't, you know, he had no reason, nothing prompted him to get back in touch until that happened. So that that opened the doors. That was in the fall of 1979. And then that began a series of these, as I mentioned, late night phone calls, usually two, three, four o'clock in the morning. And he would do this. And some of these recorded conversations, the same thing. Um, but Rex Zario started recording them. And that's how he acquired this six hours of recorded conversations. But my father, he had his book of, of all his, you know, family and acquaintances, and he would just go through the book until they would hang up and he would call the next one. And he, was, he would do that every night. So that's what it, how it was. Um, wow. And, um, you know, tragically, um, it was very difficult to really connect with my dad um, because he was... Uh, semi-coherent sometimes and chiefly because of the alcohol he could be very mean you know and he said some very mean things to me um and i don't know if you want me to repeat any of them here but but basically uh, uh it was just very very difficult to connect i mean at one point at one point i, I was probably saying something like well dad you know really you know, it was really hard growing up without a dad. And, and, you know, it's not entirely his fault. My mother could have remarried, which she didn't. But I don't even know what I was saying. But but his response was, well, well, what do you want from me, Bill? What do you want? You want money? I said, no, Dad. I said, I don't want money. I want a father. And it was a long pause. And he says, you know what you're, you know what you're being my son means to me? I said, no, what? He goes, I stuck my dick in your mother and you came out. Oh, wow. I said, whew. Really kind of crushed me a little bit. Yeah. Now I realized later it was the alcohol talking, you know, but it was very hurtful to me at the time, you know. But then later conversations, it was a more indicative that maybe he did actually care about me as if like he would, you know, show some interest in my life. Now things things like I'd, I'd say, well, yeah, Dad, I'm I'm I play guitar and I'm I'm writing songs now. And he goes, oh, well, you'll never be as good a picker as me. He would say things like that. Um, but it is what it is. But but you know, just trying to build this relationship. But curiously enough, there was one conversation where at the end of the night he goes, All right, Bill, I'll call you tomorrow. And I said, Oh yeah, okay, great. You're not thinking he would. Um, it's like a Friday night. And the next morning the phone rings and it, it, it's him, but he, he sounded totally different. He wasn't slurring his words, he wasn't drunk, it was very, you know, um, like the way his voice would sound in interviews from the fifties, you know, very very he was a very well spoken, articulate man. Um, yeah. um, um, and he say, hey, Bill, how you doing? I said, I'm, I'm doing great, Dad. How are you doing? He goes, good. And then there was just silence. And um, I didn't know what to say. And he didn't know what to say. And after like 30 seconds, he goes, oh, all right, well, I'll, I'll talk to you later. And he hung up and I hung up. And I, and I just remember feeling, man, you know, I'm probably never going to be able to develop a relationship with this guy. It's just, it's, it's just a bridge too far to cross. But I, I continued to try, as I mentioned, up until that final conversation where once again, you know, he was drunk and distressed and pleading with me to 
uh, and he would repeat himself. And, and, and in many of these conversations, he would um, just ramble on and on and tell stories. And I knew they were either embellished or completely untrue. I mean, things like telling how he had been in the Marines and uh, he shot Japanese with his machine gun. And uh, But he was blind in one eye since the age of four. He never could be in the service. He was never served. He was helping out the uh, border uh, police down there in Texas, watching for drug runners. And, um, you know, he, he just these kind of crazy stories, uh, stories about his business dealings. I mean, he had, he had invested in a mango ranch in Mexico and somehow the pistoleros were coming after him, trying to kill him because he was fencing off their land that they wanted for their cattle. And um, just these crazy stories of his life, you know, and stuff that was yeah. going on. But I was just hungry for any kind of information or relationship. I don't, I don't think I was writing the book at that time, but I was starting to get interest in learning more about him and collecting information. So I was a sponge for anything he could tell me. I wish I had recorded those conversations. I didn't. I actually went back after I was almost done my book and did some hypnosis to see if I could recall more and didn't really recall anything specific. Actually, hearing the recorded conversations with Rex Ariel prompted more recollection of the oh, actual yeah. conversations but um but yeah it was it was just a very difficult uh, uh situation for for me to try to um try to try to build some kind of relationship with this guy because um for me growing up it was difficult particularly when i was younger meaning you know 10 11 12 13 14 where my father was still very very well known and of course i had my father's name on bill haley jr so people immediately say oh bill haley Bill here in the comments, huh? I say, well, yeah, that's my dad. Oh, wow. And then they think, well, I had this great life, you know, and, and I'm real close to him and I know him well. And I had to say, well, no, he actually you know, left our family and, you know, um, it wasn't great. And, I, you know, I had to deal with, as you know, it's it's embarrassing. It's, um, you feel like there's something wrong with you, like you're rejected, yeah. you know. So all those reasons, it was really difficult for me. So that going back full circle here to our conversation, that process of doing all that research, writing the book, getting to know all the people he knew um, was my way of kind of working through all of that and and coming to the conclusion that, uh, you know, I shouldn't take it personal. It's, you know, yeah. it was bigger than him. And um, and that's just the way it worked out. And, um, you well, know, it's almost, good in the end. Yeah. I almost wonder if, if it was something that that fed into itself. I mean, I as so I've read I've read most of your book. I, I actually haven't I haven't completed it yet. But I, from from that and just other research I've done, you know, of course, if he was, I mean, you know, like if, if to my impression, you know, he was like a dutiful, had this sense of duty, right? His first wife, he married her when he found out she was pregnant, right? So it's like, that's, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to marry this right. woman and take care right. of this child. And, and then, uh, you know, but the, at the same time, he's torn because he wants, there's this other life that he wants to pursue and, and he's enamored with. And, and I, sometimes as I've, you know, read through his life, I wonder like, was the drinking just like, did he feel this guilt over, you know, each of these uh, families that he's left behind or, or this fan or this type of person he feels like he should be, but he's not, you know, and so this is kind of a way to just forget about all that or, you know, I, and I, anyway, that's my psychoanalysis of someone I've never met. Right. But yeah. I, I just, I, yeah. I often yeah. wonder about that, you know, like, well, I think, I, was, I think you're right on, you know, like, as I mentioned, the drinking, see prior, so my dad was. So 1957, this momentous tour of England that I mentioned to you, um, my father had he had reached the the epitome of success, not only in America but now around the world. Uh, he had, and now he's 
on the decline, or at least, you know, you could see he was on the decline. And that really started the year prior when Elvis took over. He could, he could see the writing on the wall and all these other. Um, but prior to that, he didn't really drink much. He would drink socially, one or two drinks. Um, but he mostly drank coffee. You know, when he was out uh, playing in the bars, you know, till two in the morning, he would drink coffee. Um, uh, you know, with, with my mother, they would drink socially. But when they went to England, drinking was much more a part of their custom you know, always have drinks before dinner and he was introduced as i mentioned to johnny walker scotch and he developed a, a liking for it and a taste co coincidentally with a period in his life where he was starting to slide down the hill and he could see that it was going to keep sliding so i think both those things contributed to um him becoming very quickly an alcoholic i mean from from hardly drinking to drinking excessively on a daily basis was a very, very quick transition right after that tour. So I think it was, it was a, it was a, a kind of a, you know, a, a perfect storm of circumstances um, that, that got him started doing it. And then once, and he, I guess he had an addictive personality, he was a chain smoker, you know, so this was a, just another addiction. And then, you know, the business started crumbling. So there's tremendous pressure on him, you know, and at one time they had a payroll of 75 people and, and, you know, one of the uh, contributors to my book was um, um, Sam Scrow, who was my father's business manager. So he really had a good look on that. And he told me, he said, you know, there were times, I'm talking now like 1959, 1960, where I couldn't even write a, a check for your father, but he made sure everybody else got their check first. Now you had to pay the band members or they're going to quit. Yeah. Um, but, but um, you know, it's it just over a period of say 57 to 62 so five-year period um the, the, you know they went from everything to nothing financially the business crumbled and things started the band started falling apart in 1960 because the guys weren't getting paid and um, the popularity had been declining and you know all these things and by that point the drinking was so bad um and you probably read this in the book if you if you read got that far the relationship between him and my mother was was just a very difficult relationship because of the drinking so um so that continued i mean when when the bass player marshall lytle um who quit the band in 1955 when uh, just quick story on that so marshall lytle the bass player joey ambrose the saxophone player dick richards the drummer they were the original members of the comets and of those three instruments and they were on the recording of rock around the clock and so that was 54. So a year later, 1955, after Rock Around the Clock has reached number one, it's July of 1955. They're driving, and so they're salaried musicians, and they're just they're making a lot of money for their for the time, a ton of money for the time. Um, but they're salaried musicians. They're not partners. They're not sharing in all the wealth. Um, my father bought five Cadillacs because the accountant said you got to start spending some of this money for tax write-offs so about five Cadillacs we had one for each partner and one for my mother and then they would use the Cadillacs to drive between gigs so those three guys Marshall Lytle Joey Ambrose Dick Richards were driving one of the Cadillacs to the next gig you know the instruments are on the bus or whatever and they're they have one of these selectric push-button radios and every station they hit rock around the clock rock around the clock rock around the clock <laughs> they're all looking at each other holy shit and and they got to Chicago and they're complaining, saying, oh my God, they just bought all these Cadillacs and this records. And we're only, where's our share, you know? And yeah. 
this woman who was in another band said, well, why don't you guys start your own thing? You know, so that's what they did. They, they did a power play. Oh, yeah. They can give us a raise or we're going to quit. And uh, my father's Lord Jim said, no, I'm give him a raise. My father probably would have said, sure. Um, but my Lord Jim said, no, they're making more money than any musician in America, you know, besides us. Um, so they quit. They started they started a band called the Jody Mars, and of course they those three musicians were quickly replaced by equally talented, if not superior, musicians. And the band continued their great success, and they made the movies Rock Around the Clock, and the whole world knows those Rudy Pompelli as the sax player, not Joey Ambrose, and Al Rex is the bass player, not. But years later, Marshall Lytle was living out in California, and my dad was playing there, and uh, Marshall went back to stage to see him. And my dad was glad to see him along. And my dad told him then, I'm drinking a bottle of tequila a day, Marshall. So this is even, you know, this is talking 1968 uh, now. So so it just continued, the drinking from 57 up until he very briefly quit drinking when Rudy died for a number of years, tried to dry out and went back to it. So it just haunted him the rest of his life. And it was just too big of a albatross around his neck for him to shake. So um so it's hard to know, um, you know, if that drinking was in part because of his uh, feelings of guilt over abandoning his families and mistreating. And not only did he abandon our families, he he didn't even attempt to um, pay child support or, or support us financially. And we were we were literally um, um, in poverty for for a year or two or three left. Um, your and, mom went back to school, right? Didn't your uh, she, well she. She helped out on the switchboard and she parlayed that skill into a job with what was then called Bell Telephone Company, became AT&T. And she worked her way up into management and ended up getting having a decent career. And then she got involved with a married man who she ended up marrying after his wife died many, many years later when I was a, an, an adult. She ended up marrying him and they were together the rest of her life. But all during my childhood, um, instead of her finding a father for her children she just stayed in this relationship with a married man where you know they would go they would have lunch together on wednesday afternoons and he would come over on sunday nights and that was it um so um not sure why i brought that up but um wow where we were going with that conversation but um and then, yeah <laughs> did, did he ever try and step in and be like a father figure to you or what he was just kind of no well well your mom and well well at, um much later as an adult and when he finally married my mother i mean well he, he and, and you know to his credit he actually did help me uh, uh pay for college get through college um okay. um but it was it, you know and hey i love the man and i don't want to say anything you know uh, but it was mostly about about maintaining his relationship with a mother not being a father he's a nice man and he had three children of his own and a yeah. good father to his children i just think he didn't you know take on that role of being a father um, well, and I imagine your mom probably being w with the experience she had gone through with your dad, maybe being a little gun shy, right? To to really make a, a commitment, right? It feels almost like that was safe. This this guy who she can see and and he yeah. fulfills something in her life, and but but she doesn't have to make that commitment. Yeah. Yeah. She's already been down that road, right? You know, she's yeah. I, I think that's all part of it. Yeah, and I and I never blamed my mom for that. You know, I just. Um, it's just unfortunate um, for her children that that we didn't really have an opportunity to have a father figure in our lives. But, but you know, um, it's okay. I mean, you know, I really feel like I 
worked through everything. And I've, you know, and I've, I raised two stepdaughters of my own um, and they're great kids and they love me and I love them. And um, um, you know, I, I, I pretty much lived a, 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 a good life, you know, as far as um, you know, I built my own career and I've good relationships with people. I'm in a wonderful relationship now for the last 18 years. Nice. So, so I can't have any, you know, bad feelings about the way I was brought up or my lack of, you know, opportunities. It just, you know, what they say, you know, where the, the, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All those things, um, you know, certainly I would have liked it to be different, but, um, yeah. but you know, you get lemons, you make lemonade. You know, that's what right. you do. <laughs> I, I know you have a one. Is it your one of your half brothers who also wrote a book? Yes, about your dad. And, yes, and. Was he, was it kind of a similar thing with him where it was just like his, his way of healing or, I mean, do you, do you keep in touch with your half siblings yeah. at all? Um, no, I don't keep in touch. So that's Jack. So he was, okay. he was the first son, my father's first son with his first wife, Dorothy Krupp. And the reason my father didn't, I was told this um, by my mother, who's, who, who heard this from my father's mother. The reason my dad didn't name him Bill Jr., was he had already left that relationship when he got Dottie pregnant and he knew he wasn't going to be the father wasn't going to wasn't going to be there um and so um he named the son Jack after um um Jack Howard Jack Howard who was my father's business partner in the early years a friend oh, okay. business partner so he named him Jack um so I'm trying to think exactly when this was it's either right before, right. It was surely before my father died. I think we actually got together, Jack and I. And at the time, Jack was working on writing a book, which he eventually did called sound and glory, the sound and the glory, the Bill Haley story um, with a co-writer of uh, John Von Hoyle. And I met with Von Hoyle as well. But by that point, I had some aspirations to write a book myself one day. And Jack was saying, well, why don't you help us write this book? And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to give you all my information because <laughs> I'm going to you know, write something myself someday. So I kind of resisted that a little bit. And, um, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was, I'll tell you, it, truthfully, I was kind of looking forward to meeting him. Like, boy, it's going to be cool to have a big brother, you know, somebody to look up to. But honestly, when I met him, it's just that it was a complete, completely not what I was expecting. And he was kind of, and he had a rough life, you know, and yeah, he just yeah. grew up in a poor environment. And, um, but he told me some stories, some of which I included in the book about, about you know, his interaction with my father. Um, but we never, we never maintained anything after that. But I, but I still know of him through, um, there was there, there was this Yahoo discussion group called the Razor Bunnies. Somebody misinterpreted the lyrics to one of my dad's songs, you know, uh, yeah. "Rocking Through the Ride." So it's kind of a joke. But but Jack would have some. They're they're Haley experts, you know. A guy by the name of Chris Gardner in England who's uh, written numerous articles and done research and done websites on my father. Another guy by the name of Alex Fraser Harrison in Canada, who similarly was a huge Haley fan and a journalist and a researcher. So they they monitored this discussion group. So Jack had been a part of the group before I got involved, but I learned through the group many of the conversations that Jack had with them. And Jack remained very, very bitter toward my father. Um, and I think that bitterness even grew um, after my father died, after his book came out, because... Um, 
my Jack, I think, kind of expected my father to kind of come around and, you know, develop a relationship. And it, that didn't happen as it didn't with me. Um, and I think, you know, through what what I read that Jack wrote to this group, um, he was very, very angry and bitter about the whole about, you know, being, you know, Bill Haley did nothing but ruin my life, that kind of thing. Yeah. So so we don't maintain contact. Now, the book he wrote with John Von Hurl, and not surprisingly, because for me, this it was similar, concentrates mostly on the period when um, my father was with his mother, which was the 1940s. Yeah. So most of that book is is those early years when my father was a hillbilly and Western artist. And then there's a chapter or two at the end about, you know, the 50s, you know, in, in history and all that. And that's kind of where that book concentrated. So in oh, terms wow. of learning about my father's early life, the, the book's very good, but not much to offer after that. With my book, I mostly concentrated on those years when my father and mother were together. Now I told the whole story from the beginning to the end, but the meat of the book is really those years from 1950 to 1962, say, yeah. when my father and mother were together. And that's when my father's career was really, um, it, all the magic happened in his career. And of course, well, I'm, I, yeah. Oh, sorry, I, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So our books are different in that way and that they focus on different periods in my father's life. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do like how, and I haven't, I haven't, obviously I haven't read um, Jack's book, but I, I do like with your book, I think you say this in the introduction or somewhere at the beginning where you, you kind of view your dad's life in three chunks, right? And it, right. it actually kind of coincides with his three marriages, you know, like it's it kind of before the fame, during the fame and, and then afterwards. And yes, um, which I've, I've actually in my, because I'm so, so with my podcast, I'm, I'm, as I'm going th into the stories of each of these artists, I'm, I'm kind of maintaining this overall timeline because I'm, I'm trying to kind of move more or less in lockstep through the history of rock. And so, so that's part of the reason why I'm with your book. I've, I've gotten as far as um, I think he's just met. Uh, what's the woman's name from Martha? Oh, oh I, it, I, I thought her name was a, it was a oh, woman. Oh, named Danny, Danny, Danny. Danny. Yeah. The affair, so the I, affair, I, yeah. 58. Yeah. 58. Yeah. Yeah. So I've gone about that far and then, but then because I, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of where I am in my timeline with everything. Sure. That's where I kind of stopped. I'm like, okay, I'm going to yeah. get all this stuff out there. And, and um, right. Right. yeah, so I. So I the the shit's just about to hit the fan. Where, where you <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell actually reading it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is juicy. And a lot of these artists, well, my plan is anyway is to, because even with Little Richard, I've, I've kind of gotten up to, 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 to Fruity, right? Where that first read comes a big thing. And then I'm going to revisit later on where he, Right. joins the ministry and those things so i i, I think with bill yeah. haley i'll do the same thing as well as kind of revisit yeah. his later life you know and, but yeah. yeah 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 but yeah we yeah we, we we broke the book down that way so my my co-writer peter benjaminson um that was his idea to break it up into three parts like that so so basically i my re lifetime of research um the way the book came about was this um I had been uh, uh, performing my father's music and I uh, was in England and um, I was interviewed for a magazine, I think it was called Vintage Rock. And um, I don't even, I don't think I even mentioned I was working on a book then, but but whatever, because of that exposure through that magazine, a book, a, a literary agent in New York read that 
article and contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in writing a book about your father? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I've got a 180,000 words. Um, and he said, well, I'd love to read it. So I sent it to him. And um, he was fascinated by it, but he could see that it needed some uh, a touch of a professional writer. Particularly, it had to be edited down because there's so much information. So we got a book contract where they wanted um, they wanted uh, eighty thousand words, so basically half of what I had. Oh. So so my uh, my my literary agent um, uh, Lee Sobel um, partnered me up with a writer he had worked with on several books. Uh, named Peter Benjaminson. Peter had written some books on some of the Motown artists and uh, Florence and, uh, and um, um, Florence Ballard and um, Rick James. Um, so so he, he was from Detroit, but he was a newspaper guy who got into writing books about music and in particular Detroit based musicians. So um, so Peter so Peter was was a good match for me. So so basically he he was had the skill to chop up and edit down my 160,000 words to a good 80,000 words. And, and then he came up with the idea of, of dividing it into three, you know, three sections, so to speak. And, um, you know, he kept most of my actual writing, a good bit of it. There wasn't too much rewrite on his part, but he added some parts where he had some expertise, like all the parts where it talks about the movies my father was a part of which I didn't really touch upon much, didn't interest me much. So Peter was very good at adding those things. Um, so he, he just, he was able to really kind of tighten it up, clean it up for me. Um, so the two of us worked really well together to, uh, to uh, and and then actually the manuscript I sent, I, I did, I started when the Salomon were formed in 1949, that story I told you where the two guys walked into the Luke's bar and said, hey, let's start a band. That's where I had started. Well, the the uh, publisher said, "Well, we, you know, it's a life story. You gotta have his early years." So Peter took a crack at at writing um, um, a couple chapters about those early years, but he based it mostly on information from um, Jack's book. Oh, okay. Down in Glory. So I read and I said, "Well, look, Peter, here's the deal. You know, most of the stuff. Number one, it's already known. Number two, some of it's wrong." <laughs> Uh, and number three, I can do a much better job. Plus, I have I had done additional interviews with my father's girlfriend when she was 14 and he was 19. Um, and that I could add, you know what I mean? So I rewrote what he wrote. And that all became part of the book as well. So yeah. it's a very collaborative effort. Um, so but it's predominantly my research and writing with, with Peter's skilled editing and um, his additional information he was able to uh, contribute. What's funny is the thing about those earlier chapters, I I can't believe that there was, what, three years that went by before you, his parents realized he was blind and whatnot, right? They He yeah. had that operation when he was like four, but four they were like he was like seven that yes. his dad realized. Yeah. That's and that cool. story was told to me by several people, including my uh, his first wife um, and... Um, I forget who else it was who told me. Maybe it was, um, yeah, it was, um, gosh, I can't remember her name. Amy, Amy Clark, the, oh, the girl who, who we befriended. Um, um, actually, actually, they had heard, they were told as kids that he got a stick in his eye and that's why he went blind. That wasn't true. But, you know, that's kids, probably the parents said, see, if you play with sticks, that's what's going to happen. You get blind like Bill Haley. <laughs> right. But it, the, the story, as you know, from the book is he had a mastoid, a growth behind his left ear. Um, and back in those days, the surgeon came to your house and did the operation right there on your kitchen table on a kid. 
and he severed his optic nerve somehow. Um, but the, yeah, the story is that, and it, it you know, I, I think in the book, I say it was when he was seven and it, it might've been when he was, it might've been two years, who knows? I don't, people's memories are fuzzy, but basically it was a number of, a couple of years, three, four years after they'd moved to Pennsylvania where the story is that an airplane was going up overhead and my father looked up at the airplane and he only covered his right eye from the sun and left, you know, just looked right into the sun with his left eye. And that's when his father looked over at him and realized that that eye was wandering. But I, I guess at the age of four, my father couldn't say, hey, I can't see out of one of my eyes. It, he, he probably never spoke up and said, hey, I'm blind in my left eye. Yeah. It just, you know, and um, from what my mom tells me, it never hindered him. I mean, he drove like a maniac and drove everywhere he loved driving he, he would he preferred driving or he'll he'll drive five six hundred miles to a gig rather than fly um yeah and, he took uh, once he got those cadillacs right wasn't he like driving himself oh, to right, right, like crazy yeah um you know i mean i think and he was nearsighted as well and he wouldn't wear glasses in public so like he just got used to being able to function with very limited vision um now he's a very shy man um in public and it you know, a lot of people say, well, that's because of, you know, on stage, you can't see out of one eye and people coming at him. And I don't think that had much to do with it. Maybe it did. I think I think his introversion was more a, um, 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 a psychological uh, uh, quirk that I have that my I think my brother Pedro has. It's kind of a social anxiety. You know, I'm not comfortable I mean, I've overcome it and I, I do fine in life, but you know, I'm I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. And I I'm so comfortable in solitude. Um, and and just like my dad, they they, they tell the same stories, kind of reluctant to go to a party, but then once you go, you're fine and you start talking yeah. to people, it's great and all that. But so I think my dad was the same way. I don't think the vision had much to do with that. It possibly could have, because he was certainly excluded as a child in sports events and things, but then once again, turning lemons into lemonade. I mean, that's why he wanted to become a singing hillbilly, like his, like Gene Autry, his hero. You know, he turned to music because he couldn't excel at sports like everybody else kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, you make the best of what life gives you. And, and, and the challenges often make you, um, even though they're difficult, they make you better in certain ways as well. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, so, yeah, so, yeah, the vision thing never was an issue. Um Except if you look at his pictures, he looks a little kind of funny with a wandering left eye. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I do remember when I first—I uh, mean, you know—growing up, I had kind of one image in my mind of of Bill Haley in the comments, you know, because I'd grown up listening to the music. But I, I do remember when eventually, first seeing a picture of him, and you just you just kind of picture rock stars in one way. And I saw him like, oh yeah, I mean, he had the curl, right? That's very like rock, you know, especially with uh, like rockabilly kind of style. But but yeah, I do, I do remember just seeing his eyes and, and thinking like, oh, this it just it surprised me. Like that's not the look you think of for uh, for a rock star. Well, the, but, the curl the curl wasn't it wasn't intended to be stylish or 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 um, hip or anything like that. It was meant as a diversion from that eye. I mean, when he started out, he would wear a cowboy hat. But then you know once they got rid of the cowboy hats, um, now he's exposed, and. Um, he had a natural calic, which I used to have. Now I have very little hair, but a natural calic right here where, where the hair just kind of, you know, not necessarily a curl, but it does a little, you know, wave. Um, and he just coaxed that into a, a curl as a diversion from the eye. Yeah. Uh, and then it became his trademark. My father would later 
had this quote when he was interviewed in, I think he was in um, Brazil or something, and they asked him about his curling. He said, well, Jimmy Durante has his nose, Clark Gable has his ears, and I got my curl. That's my trademark. <laughs> uh, but he, he was never trying to be hip or cool. But then you'll notice, you know, this is a very subtle point. But my father was the first rock star. You know, as I said, in 1954, 1955, he was a national phenomenon. Yeah. When Elvis first came out, if you look at those early pictures of Elvis, he's intentionally is making like a little, not a curl, but just like a little hair. Yeah, like a little something, yeah. A little, little something. And then, and then Gene Vincent and some of the others started doing it, Little Richard. Then, of course, the Beatles' hair became a thing, you know, remember yeah. with the mop, mop, mop tops and all and um, so hair became associated with the rock and roll personality. And my father was probably the genesis of it, but not intending it that way. Yeah. yeah it was for a totally different reason. Well, and it's definitely, I mean, because it's funny, people, most people will think of Sun Records and Sam Phillips and and his artists he managed as, as kind of like the genesis of rockabilly right. music. And really your dad was doing rockabilly before that. And And I remember, so I was in high school in the 90s and I remember that's, that's the time period where swing music kind of came back into vogue and then rockabilly as, as well. Right, right. And, and I just remember a lot of my friends who were really into rockabilly. I mean, I was really into rockabilly as well, but I didn't really have the hair for, for doing that. But a lot of them were doing the curl, you know, it's just oh, kind yeah, of funny, like, yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah, kind yeah. of comes back. Well, an interesting thing about, about Sam Phillips. So I mentioned earlier about, you know, Rocket 88, right? that this this Jackie Branson and his Delicats, as it was called on the label, was really Ike Turner. Well, before there were Sam Studios, or Sun Studios, Sam Phillips was trying to get into that business. He engineered and recorded that record, Rocket 88. Yeah. But he, but he didn't have a, any relationships with a, you know, a record company yet. So he leased that track to chess records out of Chicago. That's right. And then and then and then as I mentioned, you know, it became a smash hit in the race records market. And then my father recorded it and made more money. Well, uh Sam Phillips made a ton of money from the success of that record and and that was the money he used to create Sun Studios. Oh, okay. So it's all I it's all connected yeah yeah because so, before that it was just like the the memphis recording service or something yeah kind of exactly and there was no right. there was no yeah right right they, they weren't pressing records or anything they, they were basically saying you come in and for you know for for two dollars or 50 cents you make a recording and here take us home and share it with your friends but yeah. they, they weren't trying to get records played on you know he was starting out like anybody else um but the money he made off that record that was you know indirectly kind of a, uh, a, 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 you know, one of the stepping stones from my father's career um, made his career as well, in a way. And then of course, uh, you know, now Elvis um, would later tell my father that um, in 1953, he was driving that uh, truck for the electric company and, and he would hear crazy man crazy on the radio. And that was the song, if not one of these songs that made him say, Hey, I want to do that. I want to become a singer. Um, and, and, and so when Elvis met my father for the first time in October of 1955, he was still kind of a, uh, not well-known. He had, he had made his, you know, that's all right, mama. And he yeah. appeared on the Louisiana hayride and his new manager, you know, after he had just bought his con contract, but hadn't signed him to, to RCA yet. 
uh, uh, Colonel Parker was an old chum of my father's partner, Lord Jim Ferguson. Oh, really? So when my father was was on a tour of the Southwest, they were in Oklahoma, and Hank Snow was on the bill. Then my father, crazy combination, but that's what it was. Um, <laughs> Colonel Parker called up his old buddy, Lord Jim, and said, hey, hey, Jim, I need you to do me a favor. You know, I got this kid. I'm, I'm thinking of taking over his contract, and he's really talented. Um He's been on Louisiana Hay Ride, but he hasn't been out of the South yet. He really needs to get in front of a bigger audience to get some exposure and get some experience. You think Bill would let him join the show for a little bit? So Jim said, sure. You know, and my dad would help anybody. So so they brought Elvis started. It was in Tulsa or one of these Oklahoma shows. And, um, you know, Elvis was just this little opening act. And um, um the first couple of shows, my dad, they didn't really know each other. You know, my dad didn't pay much attention to him or whatever. Right. And Elvis wasn't, you know, you watch the movie Elvis, you think he like sprang from the head of Zeus as his rock and roll out. <laughs> it wasn't that way at all. He was more of kind of a country guy too, you know, and he was starting to do some of these, uh, like, you know, he put his, his R&B flavor on, on That's All Right Mama. And, and, but, but he still was kind of, his, actually his favorite singer and the guy he was trying to emulate was Pat Boone. He was a tremendously popular. Oh, 1955. yeah. 1955. Okay. It's ironic because, you know, later on, they would become like kind of the two, like almost Polar antithesis. Opposite. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Pat, you know, we forget about Pat Boone, but he sold more records probably than Elvis or Bill Haley for over a year, year or two in those years because he was such white bread version of rock and roll and so safe. Yeah. So that it's whole, we think of, we think of the audience as being all the same, but they're not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, so Elvis was kind of more along the Pat Boone and but Pat Boone and Bill Hale were, this is what he told my father. And he later, if you read some biographies of Elvis, he'll say this, his favorite singers were, were Pat Boone and Bill Haley. But so he was in awe of my father when he got added to the bill. And after like the third show, and um, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly where, this was an interview my father did somewhere. So I'm trying to remember where, I can't remember where it was, but my father remembered this. He says he, he he saw Elvis sitting out there um, backstage with his head down. And he said, you know, what's wrong? What's what's wrong? You know, young man, what's wrong? You know, what's, my dad was 30 years old. Elvis was still, you know, whatever he was, 19. I don't know what he was. Um, and Elvis said, boy, you know, I, I don't know if these I don't know if these Yankees are going to like me. And, and you know, my dad basically encouraged him. He said, look, you got a lot of talent. And he said, uh, you should you should focus more on doing the the, the rhythm and blues things because the people really like that. Now I'm not saying my father turned all this into who he is. I'm, what, what I'm saying is, all these little pieces do fit together yeah. and they're all connected in ways we don't even realize. But but um, they became friends after that. And then my dad uh, let Elvis drive one of his Cadillacs to the next show or whatever. And they would talk. They both love country music, so they would talk about Hank Williams and all the country or Lefty Frizzell and. You know, that's how they, they developed a, a friendship. Um, and then, um, couple, you know, then, and Elvis only stayed on the tour for like, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, but there were a lot of shows. They did shows every night. So they got pretty, you know, tight in a short period of time. And then um, shortly after that, there was a show in um, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, at Brooklyn High School in Cleveland, Ohio. It was supposed to be a video made called the, the Pied Piper of Cleveland or something. It's never, it's never oh, emerged. Yeah. It's, you know, one of those legendary, 
Um, but at that show, at that show, there was a, a photograph taken of my father and all of us together. And my and they're, they're shaking hands and my father's beaming and all of us is just looking exhausted and, and just like a young naive. And this was the first time he'd been out of the South. You know, he was trying to build some confidence. And of course, six months later, he would be the king of rock and roll and right. knock my father off the pedestal. It would happen that quickly. But um, but they but they developed shortly this kind of um mentor and student relationship in the beginning years and just to tie it up. So they didn't see each other again, like all during when, when Elvis was becoming the king of rock and roll, I'm sure my father was starting to build some resentment toward this guy. Maybe not personally, because he liked Elvis, but resentment of losing his fame, but realizing a younger, sexier, more dynamic artist with better handling, and better songs, which my father, you know, tried to control the songs, which is another reason why he didn't evolve musically. But, I mentioned, okay, these tours of, of Europe and all. So in 1958, they did a tour of Europe, okay? And it was just a disaster from day one. They got there, and they got to Italy where the tour started, and the Pope died. So they canceled most of the shows to begin with, and then the remaining shows were just poorly attended because it was an official week of mourning for the Pope. So Italy's a failure. So they go to Spain. They do one show. People are lined up around the block to buy tickets. And after one show, Generalissimo Francisco Franco, the fascist dictator, canceled all the shows because uh, rock and roll was this abomination. It was going to corrupt the morals of the Spanish youth. So the next day, they're lined up around the streets to get their money back for the tickets. So Italy's a bust. Spain's a bust. Now they go to Germany. And you have these disgruntled German youth from East Germany, who's very soon going to become communist, you know, uh, it wasn't called East Germany yet, but they were in what's what became East Germany, were, were coming over to these shows, uh, wearing mo motorcycle hats and, and leather jackets and clubs, and they were there to start trouble and disrupt. They were very, you know, so there started to be riots at these shows in Germany. You know, where, where the kids were rushing. There's one famous, because it was recorded by American Armed Forces Network, where they, they stormed the stage, they turned the piano over, and they smashed the drum kits. And, you know, the show goes on. They get to Frankfurt, and my father's like... And at the same time, my uh, father's marriage to my mother is crumbling, too. They're, they're, they're having a separation. So my father's life is just, you know, everything's going to hell. He's no longer popular in America. This tour is a disaster. They're losing money. His marriage is falling apart. He's, he's So he's back in his dressing room. He goes, look, I don't want anybody to come bother me. I just want to be left alone back here, back in his dressing room. And then somebody knocks on the dressing room door. My, my friend goes, I told you, I don't want to be interrupted by anybody. And Lord Jim peeks his head and he goes, Bill, there's somebody here who just wants to say, say hi. And it's Elvis. And he's stationed in Germany. He's, he's draft, draft or whatever. I don't know, draft. He was drafted, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That was the orchestrator. You saw the movie. Um, anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, my father, you know, was like, oh, okay. Wow. Oh, wow. And Elvis came in and um, and just lifted his spirits. And he said, Bill, if it wasn't for you, I'd still be driving a truck in, in Tennessee. And just made my father, went, went from the floor to the ceiling. And just at the worst moment in his life, picked him up. And so... In a beautiful kind of way, that whole um, mentor-student relationship um, came full circle, um, you know, and, and fulfilled itself in a way between my father and all this. This kind of 
two figures that are pivotal in the beginning days of rock and roll and and in terms of the drama of you know the fame and success um they're so intertwined um for it to come full circle like that in a way is almost like karma or poetic justice yeah that's really cool i mean we we don't tend to think of our heroes as needing a pick up me up from from us you know i mean you tend to think of them as just like they're like they're they're untouchable and they're just they're fine they're doing great and and then uh but yeah that's cool you know that like he just kind of needed that you know from somebody he, he really needed him. yeah and they had very i mean there was a lot of parallels because you know like it's i remember when i first read about that story of of um who was it was a milk gabler who who or gabler who was who's one talking about you know we if we can get like a white guy to sing this song um with well, your that, dad that, that was dave miller Oh yeah, Dave Miller. And that just reminded me of that, that famous quote from Sam, Sam Phillips, who said kind of a similar thing about Elvis. You yeah, know? yeah. But then, this really um, did happen. I'm not sure at the Sam Phillips quote. It may have. Oh, and yeah. it's, a similar, it's a similar sentiment because, I mean, clearly, and, and there was a connection once again. Now, for all I know, Sam Phillips might have called the guy at Chess Records and said, hey, man, if you get a white guy to cover that, you're really going to make some money. And then the guy at chess told his sales rep, hey, oh, if you yeah. can find a white. And the guy at chess then repeated that to to uh, to Dave Miller. And That's then Dave true. Miller went back to Philadelphia and found a white guy to cover it. Yeah, So, yeah. you know, it could all be connected because, like I said, Sam Phillips was the guy who recorded the original Rocket 88. So um, just to tie up the Elvis thing with just a little bit more how, how this connection is interesting. And um, some... When Elvis died in August of 1977, at that point I was, I'd, I'd taken a few years off from high school, then went to college. That's why I was a little older when I was in college. But, but I, during the summer, I did this thing where I, I, for like a couple hundred bucks, you could buy a pass on a Greyhound bus for a month and get off and on anywhere. So I just went, I did 9,000 miles around the country and I was in San Francisco, but I would call on once a week. I'd call my mother, say, let her know I, you know, I didn't get, abducted or killed yet <laughs> um and just so happened when i called her it was the day that elvis died it was in the headlines and um said how are you doing you know, and she goes oh your father called and i said oh what's up she said um he just wanted to let us know that he wasn't dead in case we saw the headlines that the king of rock and roll died and 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 we you know we didn't get confused and think it was him oh wow so once again it's the drinking but my father still thought of himself as the king of rock and roll. And Elvis took that title from him. And even when Elvis died and the headlines say the king of rock and roll, my dad was still thinking somehow that people were going to confuse that, particularly his family. Yeah. And think it was him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, that's, well, that's, <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. I it just, man, like that, it almost kind of breaks your heart, you know, because you just, you, you see, um, I don't know, that's got to be rough to to have that level of fame and then just to see it sort of, and well, some people dwindles away for your dad, it seemed like it happened pretty quickly, uh, you know, and then just, you kind of remember how things were. And, uh, and then I, I'm sure with with the drinking that, you know, the timeline gets kind of hazy and you're you kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and exacerbated, and uh, you'll you'll get to this at the end of my book. But um, and there was a, a very good article in a magazine called Texas Monthly written about this, about the final days, my father's final, you know, last months of his life. Um, 
where, where the alcoholism really had, had taken over. And, you know, he had been briefly institutionalized at Martha's insistence and then got out of it. Um, but he would, he would, you know, he would go to one particular place to eat and often order food and not even eat and just sit there um, and, and be drunk. But he would, and, and my brother Jack told me this story too, Jack, because well, my brother Jack went to visit him and they, they, they went to this place to eat. My father would go in there and say, and, and he said to Jack before leaving, he goes, no, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell anybody. And so they went in to eat and then they'd be sitting there and my father would like start looking around to see if anybody knows who he was. And then he'd start humming rock around the clock. Basically, he wanted people to recognize him, but he didn't want to be the one to make them recognize him. But even at certain points, and there's accounts from waitresses at this place that are quoted in this magazine, where sometimes my father would go around and say, hey, do you know who I am? And then he would show him his driver's license. I'm the guy who did rock around the clock. Like almost needing that recognition and that fame on one hand, and the other hand, not wanting it. You know, at both at the same time. Two equally incongruous viewpoints at the, the it's it's like it's like it's like the duality of you know light it's a it's a, it's a wave and it's a particle it can't be both but it is quark <laughs> you know uh, quark physics you know like how can it be a one and a zero at the same time it, right. it doesn't make sense but it is well you well, know kind of same thing and I think that that's that that introvert extrovert thing again like coming back because I mean I for me like I'm very similar where I I. For, so, you know, I, I teach classes and one of the things I enjoy the most is just being up in front of a group of, of people and you're you're lecturing and, and there is that like part of it that kind of goes to your head a little bit of like you have all these students who are hanging on your every word and, and you're but then, you know, what's funny is then if one of them comes up and wants to talk individually, you know, quite often I'm like, oh, man, like I, I don't want to talk to anyone right now. <laughs> and you, yeah. so you kind of like there's a part of you that, that enjoys that um, attention and but then you're also just not. You kind of it, want your it, you time it, and your space and your, you know, your space. And it's also anxiety producing to just kind of feel to get that be put on the spot kind of thing, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely I definitely feel that. I mean, much, much smaller way, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Well, we all do a certain certain level. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's why I say I vicariously get to experience just a little bit of what my father must have gone through, you know, the, the being on stage and, and, and having 500 people hanging on every word you're telling stories and laughing at all your jokes. And, you know, it's that's intoxicating, you know, but I mean, it's not me. It's, it's the story. It's, you know, it's not me personally, you know, so you so that that kind of makes you insecure. You know, in a right. way, you let it. So it's both those things. Yeah, um, it's a powerful feeling, but it's also an anxiety producing. Like, I don't, you know, they're, they're going to figure out I'm, I'm a phony or, you know, something, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that, that. Those and I, they say that about a lot of famous people. They they suffer from that, that, you know, gosh, they're afraid somebody's going to realize that they're they're just like anybody else when they're they're looked at as something, um, you know, much different. Yeah, yeah, that sort of imposter complex that yeah, yeah. gets hyper exacerbated. Do you I'm ever, sure my father felt some of that. Yeah. Do, do you ever at at your shows? I mean, do you guys just do um, covers of your dad's material? Do you ever do any of your own material? From you said you wrote some music back in college. Not at these shows because what I the songs I wrote were more contemporary for me, which is more kind of like you know my golden age of of uh, music when I started you know learning to play and all was was the early seventies and. Yeah, early to mid seventies and that kind of stuff. So, um, singer songwriter stuff. So it wouldn't fit with this show. Now we do yeah. do some covers, depending on the situation of other uh, rock and roll pioneers. Yeah. 
So you know we'll we'll do a you know we'll do a Jerry Lee Lewis tune we'll do a Buddy Holly tune oh, okay. we'll do some Everly Brothers you know um, my bass player will sing an Elvis tune mostly it's Bill Haley stuff because there's enough there and it is a chronological story with photographs 400 photographs so you're looking at my father from his early days with cowboy hats to you know uh, and and we're telling that story chronologically and 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 so the songs illustrate the story so we pretty much stick with the Haley material. Um, but in some cases we do, you know, like I, we'll do like a gig for a, a, a rotary club or something like that. And they'll say, well, you know, where it's not people who are coming out who are interested in Bill Haley specifically, <laughs> but the fifties music. So, you know, can you do some more, um, fifties hits by other artists as well? You know, yeah. so no problem. We'll do that. And we can do them pretty well too. Um, Gene Vincent, Bebopalula, you know, and I can sing, uh, I can sing. I can emulate other singers uh, fairly, uh, you know, uh, well enough for it to sound pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, it, yeah, works. it works. But it, but it has to be that period music. So it wouldn't, to answer your question, it wouldn't be any of my yeah. uh, tunes because they don't fit that that period. Yeah. I am curious, though, what kind of music did you listen to growing up? This is what I always wonder about people who grow up with a uh, a famous musician parent, right? Like. What is the music that they listened to growing up as a kid? Oh, for me, that the beginning for me was 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 the Beatles. Oh, okay. You know, so I'm seven years old, 62, 63. And then the simultaneous to the Beatles, you're having the emergence of Motown. Um, and then even then the, the Beach Boys and the West Coast Sound was coming out, 63, 64. So those were my early influences, you know, the the, uh, the four seasons. Uh, you know, Ragdoll, and uh, and then you know, seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, that was it. I was, you know, so you know, that was kind of my thing. Then you know, the '60s, I got into you know, the folk thing a little bit, but then of course, you know, Cream, and uh, you know, you just uh, it, the golden age, you know, and, and yeah. David oh, Bowie in the early '70s was, you know, but stuff. I mean, and I used to here in Philadelphia, we had some really good um, venues to see music. We had a little place called the main point, which is a little coffee house out across from a bar, but I saw uh, Bruce Springsteen there, you know, oh, really? you're talking to 50 seats, a coffee house. So these guys are coming up there first. So Billy Joel, um, Al Stewart, um, Lou Reed. So, oh, nice. so that's so a little venue like that. Then we had a place called the tower theater, which was an old movie theater in upper Darby, but all these bands, as they got a little bit, you know, Ziggy Stardust tour and, and Mott the Hoople. And you know, shows like I went to go see Mott the Hoople, and and they said, oh, okay, we got this opening act from Boston. Um, okay, cool, Aerosmith, their first oh time. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> so that happened. I mean, one show we went to a show. It was, it was like Hawk Wind and Crack the Sky, you know, kind of this progressive rock thing. And we're leaving, and and radio station, WIOQ, whatever it was, you know, ninety-eight point six says, well, we're going to have a midnight show for 98.6 cents or whatever um some band coming over from england just to you know okay cool so we go out we come back at midnight pay our 86 cents it's genesis doing oh, watch no skies with the triangle head and all. so that was the golden age for me you know the kinks i mean i, I love the kinks kinks play besides the Beatles, my favorite band ray, ray davis is my favorite songwriter of all time oh, so, he's so all good. So, so underrated yeah oh my god he's the greatest songwriter ever and just the whole yeah. so that was for me that was like rock and roll rock and roll and then you know talking heads and and then you know elvis costello but then i just started getting really bored with where rock and roll was going so i went totally into uh Jazz, 
and then oh, big nice. band. So I got back to the forties and then I went the whole, I just not left nothing but jazz for years and years. And, um, and then, you know, came back around to rock and roll. And then I started getting, you know, gone and listened to those jump blues bands from the mid forties and all that stuff. Then I got into, uh, uh, you know, bossa Nova and a lot of that stuff. Um, so I just keep searching classical. I mean, even as a, as a high school kid, I used to, you know, Chopin, I love by Philippe Entremont. I love to play that album a million times, you know, Mozart, um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So I, I've always had a wide ranging um, interest in all kinds of music, but like, then I get tired of it. You get music gets used up. You can go back and hear something that, that, okay, it's cool, but you know, all the, all the curiosity brain cells have been, you know, exhausted. So there's not right. much there. So I can't continually go back and re-listen to what I'm already familiar with. Yeah, yeah. I'm constantly evolving and looking for you know, something else that catches my uh, my interest. And um, it just it's funny, interesting. You know, I said, you know, '77. I traveled around the country when I was off from college for the summer. The following year, I went up to Montreal because I was a French was a second major for me, and I wanted to use my French. So I I went up to Montreal for five weeks, and I heard a band up there. I just blew my mind. I loved them, you know. And just recently, I, I had YouTube music, and I looked them up, and here they are. And so I got it, and I found all this music that I remember listening to. Uh, Beau Dommage, which was a huge band in French Canada. Oh, really yeah. cool, progressive rock, folk rock. Um, so that's me. I just, I'm looking for things that, you know, that stimulate me again. Yeah, you know? yeah. And curiosity. And, um, so all kinds of music appealed to me. Um, and, and even, you know, traditional country, which I found kind of boring for a while, um, when I saw that Ken Burns documentary and it was put in a chronological timeline, yeah, and now it really fits for me. And so I re-listened to the Carter family, you know, and 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 you know, uh, you know, Jimmy Rogers and you know, all these guys with a new perspective on where they fit in this great big, you know, thing that started in the 1890s in New Orleans when 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 uh, Caribbean music and the African rhythms from Congo Square and the European European classical sound from the Creole class in North came together and created what became jazz and blues. Yeah. And it evolved and and traveled up rivers into the cities and um it's just big, big picture to me. And the more I listen and learn, the more it all fits into place and and these little interesting pockets of you know that I didn't know about now fit into place. So that's kind of how I see music. I just no, I'm, uh, I'm the same way. I and it's funny, a very similar thing where I I remember I wasn't really a big fan of a lot of the like like you said like the older kind of traditional country tunes and then and then college you know I started I so I studied music in college. I mean obviously and I. Uh, I remember that's a similar thing, right? I could finally see it in, in context and and appreciate it for what it contributed to what would come after, you know? And so then you start seeing things in the music that you maybe didn't see before because you're like, oh my gosh, this is yeah. this is actually quite you know profound that the way that she's doing the Carter scratch, like that's, you know, first time someone's doing, playing guitar that way and that, that would contribute to this. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's well, what it's I enjoy all, about it. Yeah, it's, it's all true. So there's the... The historical context of how it came to be then if as a musician i don't know if you play an instrument at all oh yeah yeah okay yeah, piano so, and drums are my main instruments but yeah okay yeah so so you know as a musician you kind of hear things from that perspective too and then lyrically you know and, and how most lyrics are from the, that period are, are, are kind of banal but there's even interest from that perspective so there's there's different ways you can approach in it and 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 absorb um music 
And but the historical context is always a strong component of that. And then, of course, from a musical standpoint, like you know, first time they use this approach to playing the bass or whatever, um, it, it that makes it all interesting to me. And yeah, it's yeah. it's all not just something that to interest me, because if it's too familiar, I just I'm not. It's it's kind of boring. I move on to something else. <laughs> Unless it's just going to be background music, which is okay. Uh, but if I'm really listening, um, it's got to appeal to my intellect or my curiosity of somehow. Right. Yeah. As a, yeah. as well as the subliminal, just the um, you know, the way music makes you feel on an emotional level that has nothing to do with your intellectual perception of it, but just the way it makes you feel. It evokes it's uh, evocative of of all kinds of emotions. Yeah, and that's really one of the great strengths of, of music is it, it it cuts right through to your emotions, yeah. whether it's the lyrics or the or the the way the strings are arranged or the way the melody takes a turn or um, you know slips into a different minor key or something. It's all you know. It's all part of that dynamic of what makes it interesting. Well, and that was that was what I prompted me to start this podcast. You know, I, I teach one of the classes I teach is history of rock, and I it's really hard to take all that history and, and it's a semester long course. And so there's so many stories I just have to breeze through. Like actually Bill Haley, usually it's just like, it's one class period where I kind of, I have to kind of just breeze through him and a few other artists and we barely have any time to really yeah. sit down and just soak it up. And, and so I just kept thinking like, man, like this would be great to do this as a podcast where you just really take the time to dive in and you look at the music and you absorb it and talk about the stories and, and, um, yeah, so I that's I definitely relate to that. And whenever people ask me like, "Oh, what, what's your favorite artist? What's your favorite song?" those kinds of questions, I, I have to I have to qualify it. Well, well, what do you mean to just listen to for fun, or do you mean something that's like intellectually stimulating? Do you mean something for you know, like I have like purposes for music? You and, know? and it's when you know at different times. You know, yeah, that's yeah. I don't favorite anything. Depends on when, where, how. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, I I mean I. I don't have any other i mean there's always more questions you think of but i uh this is a lot of great material this is i really appreciate you um you jumping on here it's all good to me i i i, I enjoy talking about this because that's something that just i find tremendously fascinating and um, um and then of course there's a personal aspect for me in terms of, of my uh, experience um and uh and the challenges of being related to a famous person so i'm happy to talk anytime if anything comes up and uh you know I applaud you for what you're doing as well. I did one other interview with somebody else from the Razor Bunnies group um, who he had studied guitar with John Kay. And so uh, so he just had some interesting stories from from that side of things, you know, where it was just one of the one of the, the session musicians, not session music, but, you know, one of the yeah, yeah. the not partners. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I'll probably kind of have them all three of them put out at the same time. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when that's ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Johnny K was kind of a a peripheral figure. He, I mean, he came in after the heyday, you know, in, in early in nineteen sixty, yeah. um, and um, but he he was there for some. He was there for the Wembley concert in seventy four, which was pretty uh, uh, impactful. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I, he passed away this year, I think, early, early last year. But um, oh, he's, okay. he was you know an interesting guy as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I talked to almost all those guys. The one exception being Billy Williamson, who um, after after so fifty two to sixty seven, only ten years, boy, but ten years of being you know there at the beginning, and then there for the the downfall. Um, came home, and I'm told by Franny, 
Beecher, who was the guitar player and one of his best friends, and Johnny Grandy, who was also the other original partner, and they all lived in the same area in Jeffersonville. He came home and he threw his steel guitar down the cellar steps and from that point forward refused to ever talk to anybody about his experience. He got religion and he greatly resented the time he lost with his family, even though it was only 10 years, but he was almost never, same with my father, my own family, you know. Um, your family falls apart when you're never home, you know, yeah. except for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Um, so except for him, who would never talk to anybody. And I did talk to even his brother. Um, I talked to most of the, uh, if not all of the musicians who played throughout, you know, the early period and even I mean, you know, into the 60s. Yeah. Wow. So, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that Everybody's got a story to tell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now I'm working on the documentary. So, uh, yeah, which is, that's exciting. I, I'm looking forward to that, to when that yeah. comes out. Because yeah. I, I do feel like, and, and I mean, this isn't pandering, but I, I, I do feel that Bill Haley is generally very overlooked. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we, we discuss a lot of, there's a lot of other artists that we spend a lot of time on, but I, I think uh, Bill Haley is one of those figures who people don't, usually don't really understand, like, just how, like how, what a big deal he was and like just what a key figure he was, you know, in, in the beginnings of rock. They just, they'll maybe know rock around the clock right. and they think, oh, that's just kind of a big hit, you know, but they don't really understand like, oh, wow, like he was right there at the beginning and, and influenced. Well, you know, part, part of the problem is um, with that, there's there's several reasons for it. And one was his own personality, which, he, you know, he, he avoided interviews when he could, and, you know, and he, and he wasn't engaging except, you know, he great, gave great interviews, but, not enough of them and didn't play the game so much. But the other really probably more important part of it is he was really more of a transitional figure. I mean, in, in some ways he's, he, in addition to being the first rock band, they were the kind of the last big band kind of thing. I mean, you know, they start off with horns. I mean, the musicians that they used and brought in, Used a session drummer on all those who are rock around all those early really Billy Gussack. He was a big band drummer. Um yeah. the sax players all were jazz guys, Rudy Pompelli, um, you know, um who else? The, the guitar players, Franny Beecher, you know, jazz. Uh, um Danny Cedrone, who played on Rock Around the Clock, and, and then he fell down, you read in the book, he fell down a flight of yeah. steps or was pushed. Right. Uh um, a month after recording that um, jazz, I had a band called the S Square Boys. So, so this was a hillbilly and western band playing race music with jazz musicians. Yeah, and it's just it's hard to wrap your head around it. And there wasn't there's no comparable band to put it to. Yeah. You know, and then Elvis came with such a great impact. And then, as I said, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, and you know these larger than life rock and roll pioneer figures. There's going to be a documentary coming out on HBO about Little Richard and screaming, "I am the king of rock and roll." I am. So my father, you know, my father doesn't fit any of these, you know, easy to understand, you know, roles. Um, There's kind of a, an anomaly, but they're a pivotal connection between the old and the new. Um, So, but for that reason, I think he's overlooked and unappreciated. Except, as I mentioned, in England and Germany, where they kind of really, and it's not just Bill Haley. I mean, jazz artists are much more appreciated in Europe and in England than they are here. Oh yeah, that's traditional artists. Um, 
So it's more of America's more of a throwaway culture. And it's what have you done for me lately with few exceptions. Whereas in, in European culture, it's more, you know, once, once they know who you are, appreciate you, they don't forget. And yeah. they can afford you that, that uh, deference and that respect that you've, you know, rightfully earned. So, um, so it's just true. Yeah. Yeah. TikTok hasn't helped in that regard either. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, and, and, and time and time is, a, I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, I mentioned that this uh, gentleman, Brad, who um, connected me with this John Schoenfield is well, well-known music documentary guy was kind enough to, you know, talk to me. But one of the things he said to me was, you know, one of the things you're going to face is I've, I work on documentaries on, you know, John Coltrane and, but, but Netflix and, they they want their audiences under forty. They're not going to ever going to buy a Bill Haley documentary, you know, because oh, wow. they, they you know they they want. So I'm not not to say that maybe a PBS or somebody that's a little more you know, um, history conscious might. Yeah. But that's going that's part of my challenge. I mean, my book, you know, it didn't sell that much. I mean, I, I have a major publisher. It's in Barnes and Nobles. Um, I have a major publisher in England, but you know, it's it's not a bestseller because. People aren't that interested in what happened 75 years ago, particularly about a relatively minor figure from their perspective as compared to Elvis say. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, time's an enemy as well. Yeah, yeah. You, but, need a, yeah. you need a movie to come out of or something like that. Something that kind of reinvigorates people, you know. To... I had a movie deal for the book. Um, a guy by the name of Joel Naya, Naya. Um, and he had made... Like like three to five million dollar budget films. One of them was called um, "Can You Ever Forgive Me," starring Melissa McCarthy, and that made it to HBO. So he's he's not a nobody, yeah. but he's not a major filmmaker. But he's legitimate, and he signed, yeah. you know, and he, and he put up the ten grand for the first year to have the opportunity to make a deal with the studio. And unfortunately, that first year was ended right in the middle of COVID. The first year of COVID. Uh... And so he had, he had now had to renew for another $8,000 for another year. And he said, the independent film industry is shut down because of COVID. And I just can't bring this thing to the finish line. And I can't put up another eight grand for an uncertain future. So the movie didn't get made. But, you know, I was very hopeful there would be, if not a major motion picture, at least something that would be, get you know, film festivals and and who knows what, you know. Yeah, it's something. Netflix or something. Um but it's, you know, hope the book's still there. So there maybe, you know, I was hopeful when the Elvis movie came out that some director would say, whoa, wow, biopics of pioneers. Who else hasn't done one? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that, so that could happen one day. We'll see. Yeah, In the meantime, I'll work on a documentary and hopefully sell it to somebody who can finish it because it's um, it's too time consuming for me. I, I've, you know, and to, unless I can sell my publication because that's that takes all my time. And but that's how I do my living. And I'm not... I'm not set for life, so I need to keep generating revenue. Uh, but if I ever sell my magazine, I might say, now I can devote all my time and maybe years time. I could get something uh, finished enough to either sell it or or to get somebody who's more experienced than me to pick it up and finish it. Kind yeah. of thing. So. Okay, that wraps up uh, both parts of my interview with Bill Haley Jr. Hopefully all of you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed uh, doing it. Um, like seriously, towards the end there, even when we, we started to talk about musical interests and uh, I, I was, I must admit, I was deeply impressed with uh, Bill Jr.'s taste. He's, he's got good taste in music. I, I 
honestly could have kept talking for like another hour just about just about music in general. Um, so anyway, hopefully he enjoyed it as well. And, uh, and just a shout out to, to Bill. Thank you so much for, for your time. And, and, uh, and of course, I want to encourage anyone listening to this uh, to check out his book. It's, again, it's called Crazy Man Crazy. And it's published by Backbeat. And uh, the way I accessed it was on Amazon. I, I bought the Kindle edition. Um, but in hindsight, I kind of wish I bought a hard copy. So if I ever meet Bill Jr. in person, I could have him sign it. Um, I'll just have him sign my forehead. All right. Uh, and that's it. Um, also, yeah, if, if uh, Bill Haley Jr. in the comments are ever in your town as well performing, I encourage you to check that out as well. It sounds like it's a really cool show and uh, kind of a fantastic trip down memory lane for those who, who lived through those times, but just a great, um, I don't know, we have to preserve our heritage and our history and, uh, and, and all this stuff. Early rock is such a huge part of our, our pop culture scene today, but also just our culture in general, uh, even with race relations and gender relations and, and uh, issues. And uh, there's just so many things tied to that that crucial period with these artists that is often overlooked and most people are not aware of, which I think is kind of one of the funnest things about this podcast. So, all right, that's that's it. I'm done rambling. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, you know what to do. Keep it deep. I don't even know what keep it deep means, but do it anyway.